This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Uh, we are at Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Philip Clayton. He holds the Ingram Chair at Claremont School of Theology and directs the Comparative Theology's PhD program. A graduate of Yale University, he has taught at Williams College and the California State University, as well as holding guest professorships at the University of Munich, the University of Cambridge, and Harvard University. Philip, uh, thank you so very much uh, for coming on our show today. Thanks, Thanks for having me, and Phil. So we have a Philip and a Phil. Um, let's not get confused. Philip, um, tell us, uh, for our audience' sake, uh, a bit about your own spiritual path, what brought you to the study of theology, and a little bit about uh, what occurred along the way that drew you to academia. Well, that sounds fun. Let me see if I can tell you that so in a, um, a lively way. I was brought up a good atheist in a, a devoutly atheist family. <laughs> we um, have that in common. And the strangest thing uh, forever and the greatest rebellion I could have achieved was coming home from a Christian camp at age 14 and telling my parents, I am a Christian, and promptly telling them why they were going to hell, why uh, <laughs> Adam was banished from the garden, why Jesus came to give a blood sacrifice for those who accepted him with their heart and mind, and why when he came back, my parents were going to be in trouble. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I saw my oh, dad. Before just, you go any further, I need to know why they let you go to that camp in the first place. Exactly. But they were permissive parents. Ah. They would prefer that I, uh, I become active gay 14-year-old and uh, <laughs> uh, gone to, um, you know, some sort of uh, sexual soiree. But uh, they had to let this happen. So I had six or seven years as a really conservative fundamentalists, wondering if there was truth in any book but the Bible. And that ended in my junior year of a Christian college, at that time a very conservative college named Westmont College in Santa Barbara. Now, when and you went to, professor, if, I, if I could ask, when you went to Westmont, was that a big discussion with your parents? Did they support your college education, or was that uh, another battle? No, they, they allowed it. Again, liberals. Uh, and I remember asking my father, should I apply to Stanford, which is where he graduated from? And he said, I don't care. That was one of those, you know, sad moments when you're hoping for a no and uh, you get a, a wishy-washy answer. And at this moment, in my junior year, the prof professor was lecturing on, I don't know, Leibniz or something, and 23 young men were leaning forward on his every word. And, uh, and all of a sudden he said, he held out his hands and he said, these are the questions. And I got it like the snap of a finger. The, it's about the questions. Mm -hmm. And it was from that point on that I, uh, that I started the journey toward first uh, liberal theology and now uh, exploration of the beliefs and practices of the world's religions. Fascinating. You're, you're the second person who went to that college that we've interviewed, the other being... Uh, Diane Butler Bass. Yep. Uh, she was a friend. She was a freshman when I was a senior. And she's kind of cute uh, and brilliant. <laughs> so 
Yeah, I got to know her then, and we've worked together for years since then. That's great. If I could ask, uh, when you went to that camp, getting back to when you went to that camp as a, as a teenager, was there one specific event that uh, pushed you in the direction of embracing Christianity, or was there one person, or was there some internal spiritual experience, uh, or all of the above or none of the above? To answer your questions, I have to be a little bit vulnerable. Okay. Is that allowed on your show? Yes, oh, please. Full vulnerability, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, there, the, there was a cause and an effect. The cause was sitting on the shag carpet, you know, late 60s was all about shag, or early 70s, mm-hmm. all about shag carpets. Uh, we wouldn't call it shagging. But anyway, we were sitting there in this small group and uh, I was completely accepted. And they said they could offer unconditional love to me as God offers unconditional love to each one. And as a young man, I felt rejected by parents and uh, insecure and self-judgmental. When somebody said, you can be loved unconditionally and that religion can be about grace, not law, that had a huge influence on me. And so the effect was the next day when the altar call came, I, I reached out to receive an understanding of spirit as grace. And how did that influence your subsequent uh, spiritual path and your studies in theology? I love that question because I never thought of it, but it really is a continuation of that same sense that spirit or the divine must mean grace, being wrapped in arms or surrounded by uh, a positive, accepting, loving spirit uh, like, like the fish swimming in water. It becomes our medium, the very medium of our existence. I'm a mystic. I just am made to have these incursions of something beyond myself as a part of my daily existence. And I have been fascinated to see how that experience of what Christians call grace um, emanates through uh, the various traditions of the world. Mm -hmm. So, Philip, I wanted to ask, uh, you took the, the, an academic direction in theology, but it also sounds like you are very much a person of faith. Uh, did you ever consider, go, or maybe you did and I don't know, but did you ever go into, think, consider going into the ministry, or have you gone into the ministry, or do you prefer being in academics? Yeah. Uh, you know, when I had this conversion, of course, I started a um, Christian club on campus called Salt of the Earth, and you know, became a leader in my church and so forth. It was obvious that if you're a leader, you have to be a pastor. So that was why I went to college. And somebody told me, uh, if you want to be a good pastor, be a philosophy major because you'll preach more clearly. Mm. So I became a philosophy major, and that was the destruction of the very evangelicalism that they had meant to support. <laughs> uh, I found later also that... Um, some people can uh, can preach and can talk one-on-one with people and retain their sort of a normal ego, but that it did strange things to me that were incompatible with 
um, with being infused by a divine presence. Uh, so I, I dropped out of the MDiv program, Master Divinity program at Fuller, with, and began going the academic route. Mm-hmm. I should and tell you guys finally that um, I found my way into the Religious Society of Friends. Um, is I'm a Quaker, mm-hmm. and we don't have pastors or clergy because we believe there's that of God in each one, and that the divine guides each one to the extent that they're willing to listen. And where did you end up doing your uh, graduate work? So I had a I had a pretty good pedigree, I suppose. Uh, from uh, Fuller, I uh, received a two-year fellowship from the German Academic Exchange Service and went to study with one of the most brilliant and demanding theologians in the world, Wolfgang Tannenberg in Munich, mm. uh, where I worked, began to work on theology and science. I went from there to Yale University. I did a joint PhD in religious studies and philosophy. Uh, at the same time, I taught at uh, Haverford College and then Williams College, which was number one liberal arts college at the time. spent two years teaching at Harvard. Uh, as a Fulbright fellow and a uh, Humboldt fellow later in Munich. I speak fluent German. Uh, so I, I had the chance to do the academic um, high spots, and I have to say that that actually helped me break from the myth that all truth was to be had through reason and specialized academic study. I just don't believe that. Uh, Philip, I, I want to ask you, you have a, a, a quite an uh, academic pedigree. I mean, you, you have um, you've been to some of the top schools and been around uh, many brilliant students, and I'm sure had uh, tremendously brilliant professors. Now, does that make it then difficult to speak about your your beliefs uh, and your thinking in regard to religion and regard to Christianity to those folks who do not have those academic credentials, to people that are just not as gifted? Uh, uh, intellectually? Uh, it does not make it difficult if you can release your bond or bondage to your disciplinary training. And I believe that for spiritual advance, you have to be able to release things. Uh, then practice is all about watching, uh, actually many meditative traditions are possible, watching things come by, experience them, noting them, and releasing them. So my word of exhortation to any of your listeners who may be academics is this. Here are some spiritual practices in releasing your egotistical hold on your disciplinary brilliance. Number one, it's a very small pond in a very big ocean-permeated reality. Don't fill up your ego on being the best among a small number of people. Number two, it's only one perspective of all this vast variety of um, means for us to, to comprehend a higher reality. Number three, look at what brilliant people are out there with different kinds of skills, making violins, playing violins, uh, craftspersons, uh, people who understand others, activists. To think that your way is the only place where intelligent people go is a mistake. And finally, fourth, and this, you guys, is actually was very deep for me, is to recognize that when you go to the extreme of rationalism, 
when you got a claim that everything is guided by rationality. And the other stream, of course, being mysticism, the, the oneness, the immediate intuition, you find out that the ends of that continuum meet. Often the greatest rationalist philosophers are mystics at heart, and that was precisely my experience. So it is a one-sided thinking to think the continuum is only a straight line. And actually it bends to connect the rational even the scientific connects with the mystical and the unit of thinking. Very good. Thank you. So um, I, I'm very curious. You've been uh, in teaching in academic contexts for a long time. You're at uh, uh, an eminent school of theology now and have been for several uh, number of years. Uh, how, in your experience, have the students who uh, come to study theology, have they changed over time? And, and if so, how do you see that uh, maybe generational shift? And how, how are things different now? Yeah, Phil, I love that question. Uh, it's a snapshot on the change in our culture, in fact, our global culture. Uh, the German students under this brilliant theologian, Pattenberg, when I started, would um, uh, memorize uh, Latin phrases. We would read Thomas Aquinas in Latin, and I'd have to translate it on the spot into German. That's a hell of an assignment. Uh, at the beginning of seminary, the, the seminary degrees were sort of four-year programs involving learning two languages and all the history of doctrines and dogmas in the Christian tradition. The units became fewer, the financial support decreased. The chance to be in a white steepled church um, be, moved towards zero. My students now have scant interest in the history of Christianity. They don't know why Presbyterians should hate Methodists and vice versa, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, we now teach in an interreligious fashion so I have just finished a course on justice, compassion, and transformation across the world's traditions. Mm. And my students are fascinated to follow an exploration through traditions they knew nothing about so that the richness of the notions of justice and compassion grows on them. And frankly, I'm more proud of the students today than I was of the students 20 years ago. Uh, Philip, uh, uh, can I assume? Let me follow up, Dennis. Uh, can I assume that the students are also religiously and ethnically more diverse than they were in the past? Yeah, definitely, definitely. <clears throat> Philip, if a student yeah. comes to you and says, "Look, uh, I am I, an atheist or I'm an agnostic. I would like not to be. I, I appreciate uh, <laughs> your faith, your belief, uh, your your." feeling that you can uh, be a, a Christian, that intellectually uh, there's some way you're satisfied with that. Uh, mm -hmm. take, me, take me to that promised land. How, how, do, I, how do I get there? Uh, and uh, maybe that's a question I'm asking because I'm, I'm very strongly agnostic these days. <laughs> and you want to know if that is how, uh, how What would you say well, if it was a student and they said that? Uh, I'm an atheist as you once were. 
Uh, I, I would like not to be an atheist, but nobody's convinced me otherwise. Can you convince me? Where, 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 yeah. How can I move in that direction? Yeah. So I'm literally sitting in my office now and looking at the chair where they sit. And I can tell you what I do tell people like that. I say um, that it's, if you're looking for religion as a place of certainty, I'm afraid I can't give it to you because I don't believe it. If you're looking for a spiritual life, which is a continual adventure, like a little boat on uh, you know, the high seas, um, if you're looking for a life filled both with faith, with a sense of presence of spirit, and also with gut-wracking doubt, then I can be your guide. Okay, if, if you, you can drop, be my guide, what's the first step? Uh, drop the dichotomy between secular and sacred. Uh, be a biologist, be a historian of ideas, be a skeptic. We actually can find more common ground than you think. But when we drop the old categories, is it objectively true? Is it relative? Then we find that there's a common space. Uh, as Wor uh, Wordsworth says in um, Tintern Abbey, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused. That can be our common ground. I'll be your learner as much as you can be mine. And together, maybe we can leave behind the distinction between the theist and the atheist, a deadly dichotomy, I'd like to suggest. Mm. Very good. It sounds like, uh, from my knowledge of you on a personal level and what you're saying here, your orientation toward uh, matters of religion and spirituality is very experientially oriented. Um, and um, I'm curious, and I, I have a sense that the students who come to Claremont School of Theology, where you teach, would find that not only intriguing, but refreshing. Is that the case? And, and perhaps uh, a revelation. Uh -huh. uh, yes and no, no because I, everyone needs to own their location. That includes experiences, but it includes the gender of your body. If you identify with one, it includes your language, your color, your um, ethnic background. Uh, and we have to own and know our space and be comfortable with it. But then you have to reflect. You can't be lazy. Uh, so if you inherit a Christian location, you need to understand what you inherited. And now what are the other options? So picture a circle. You start, as it were, on the bottom of that circle with your own location and experiences. Then you travel around into new regions you've never studied before. And, you know, you have to work really hard to, to master them. And as your mind fills with a sense of the possibilities, then circle back around and watch your initial experiences be transformed. That is what I think is our task. Mm -hmm. Philip, uh, m m most if not all in Christi the, the world of Christianity, uh, I uh, was raised a Catholic, and at least from that perspective, is uh, one of uh, proselytizing, I believe in proselytizing and conversion. Uh, uh, you 
uh, are a Quaker, uh, that is a branch of Christianity. Uh, is that also part of it? Do you, when you meet somebody, do you feel that uh, ultimately it's your responsibility to at least attempt to convert them to Christianity? Yeah. No, absolutely not. I just started a class, which is a survey of the scriptures and devotional traditions of all the major religious traditions in the world. The first thing I told the students was, I'm going to ask you to immerse yourself in Holy Quran or in the Bhagavad Gita or Dada Ching, uh, whatever the text is, and to seek to understand that world to the greatest extent possible to to try to verbalize what you've seen and experienced within the um, world of that text uh, and then from there to adapt to 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 enrich in your own home location with it so my book instead of being you know doctrines of the christian faith is called transforming christian theology and i said i want you to take the major areas of doctrine that good Catholics have learned about in their classes, right, before confirmation. And I want you to teach, uh, treat each one as a question. So we believe in God the Father Almighty becomes, what is your conception of the divine? We believe in Jesus Christ our Lord becomes, who do you think that Jesus was? And on and on from that point. And you guys, if you can transform what used to be doctrines into questions, and the person says, yes, those are my questions, then that is a world of dialogue that I can be a part of. If I could just follow up, uh, you, you, you uh, went to a, a fundamentalist college, so somebody from that fundamentalist college then uh, hears you say that, and then they follow by saying, uh, wasn't it said that, uh, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I... I, I have commanded of you, and then it, I, I forget what the rest of it is, but isn't that world. your duty as a Christian to do that? And uh, what is your response to them if they ask that question? Okay, here we go. Guys, <laughs> look more carefully at your fundamental documents, the Gospels. Go back to the very first one, Mark, which has the least theological superstructure of all, and ask yourself, who was this guy? I think the story that you get is very different than what the creeds have told us. Mm -hmm. Let me just try to say a metaphor or two, because this is where my passion is about Christianity. The, what I think its gift is to the symphony of the world's religious traditions, spiritual traditions. Jesus is a homeless rabbi. Jewish rabbi who has no place to rest his head, as it says. He walks and uh, meets people, brings to those encounters an incredible ability to listen and to understand. The woman at the well in Samaria, the Samaritan woman in John 4, is amazed that he's willing to listen and talk with her without condemnation. The woman caught in adultery, is it what, John 8, uh, is brought to him, and he's kneeling down, scribbling on the ground, it says. And they say, come on, Rabbi, you know, you know what the law says. Uh, she must be stoned. 
and he pauses a long time, and then he looks gently up at them and says, hey, whoever's perfect, you go ahead and throw the first stone at her. And one by one, they drop their stones and leave the square until he's alone with her, and finally he looks up and says, did no one condemn you? Then neither do I condemn you. Man, if people could get that Jesus of no combination of the ability to live and the prophetic call against the rich and powerful and being on the side of the oppressed, that would be a Christianity I'd be happy to be associated with. Very good. Very good. Uh, Philip, um, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about one of the areas I know you're passionate about, and that is the uh, intersection of spirituality and uh, the environment, or what some people call eco-spirituality. Mm-hmm. You're involved at Claremont with the Center for Spirituality and Sustainability. Tell us why that's so important in your life and how spirituality enters into the uh, what we could all agree is a climate and environmental crisis. Yeah, you're right, Phil. That is my greatest passion and investment of time at this point, uh, in fact, I work now half-time with a nonprofit that we founded called the Institute for Ecological Civilization, or ecociv.org. Eco, like ecological civ, civilization, ecociv.org. The goal is to bring home to people that we face a crisis like none other in the history of humanity, and that, in fact the odds are not on our side. We need every resource that we can possibly find. Science alone won't do it. Traditional religion alone won't do it. We need a point of meeting. Let me tell one story and then uh, see where you want to go with this. Uh, We organized a session, several sessions on spirituality and science at the World Parliament of Religions 2008 in Melbourne. I've done it in each parliament since then. There was a Nobel Prize winner who gave a talk on science and climate data uh, before the various religious leaders stood up. At the end of his talk, he uh, set down the PowerPoint projector uh, remote, moved to the front of the stage, looked out at an audience of some 600 world leaders in of the world's religions and said, uh, friends, I am a scientist. I can share data. I am not a religious person in any respect, not at all. But I have found as I've traveled the world that people are not moved or transformed by the data alone. Then he reached his hands out and he said, but you, religions are known for their ability to transform lives hearts and minds. Will you please partner with me? You can, I will share the data and you help draw from their deepest value, from the depths of their hearts for transformation. If we work together, we can do this. I think that would be my strongest call. Well, and how are you working in that area? So what's mm-hmm. the, uh, practical uh, application of this uh, passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have just 
uh, worked for over a year to help prepare the Parliament of the World's Religions, uh, the Toronto meeting a few months ago in November. Uh, we uh, ran the justice track um, that ecosiv.org spent uh, countless hours helping to bring together speakers from around the world who could say, this is my religious tradition, this is my spiritual practice, this is how it becomes a resource for the transformation of human uh, responses to the environment, the transformation of how we think ourselves as embodied individuals located within a global biosphere, how we are not externally related to that to other living things, but as one within a single process of throbbing, blooming life. And when we see that, when our own sense of ourselves is transformed from the bottom up, so I am not other than the more than human animals, than the air and the trees and the, um, the earth's biosphere as a whole, then I know how to live not only with nature, but also with other human beings. The greater that conversion then it's not the conversion to some creed, but the conversion to our own earth-centered identity. The greater that conversion, the better chance we have. Uh, Philip, I'm wondering if there's a a, a religion uh, that, uh, and I'm thinking of actually Native American religion that uh, in, that uh, that articulates those issues and those concerns most clearly and perhaps even has spiritual practices uh, that encourage and uh, support that. Absolutely. Uh, that's exactly how I would answer as well. Uh, most of the indigenous traditions don't speak of themselves as religions, but as life ways. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Mm -hmm. A life way. And their life way is always, I don't know an exception, attached to a part of the earth that is they that they call sacred and I actually think they're right a mountain uh, a river a lake a part of the ocean and to the living things who are there uh, you know the native peoples along the Columbia River in the American Northwest when they had to kill game would pause and to thank the animal before they, or after they, um, they killed it with an arrow or whatever it was, to say that you have given your life for me, and I pause to thank you for that. Indigenous people set for us a model. I would like to see, to believe that the other religions are learning from their own scriptures and practices the deep truth of the first peoples of the world. Wonderful. Uh, wonderful Phil, answer. Um, Phil, go ahead. Um, many of our, well, all of our listeners are uh, interested in spiritual subject matter, and I, I'm guessing that nearly 100% of them are on a spiritual path of their own uh, and probably share our concern and your concern with the fate of the planet and the, the crisis of climate change. What advice would you give them uh, for, you know, how they might get involved or contribute to the, the solutions and the, the spectrum? 
<laughs> I know you think I'm going to say go to ecosiv.org and make it <laughs> no, we'll You can that. say that. We'll, yeah. we'll yeah. say that. But yeah. I'm not. Uh, so I do at various places um, retreats in eco-spirituality. And I would say that the starting point for me is always this. Find a place in nature that you can identify as your home, I say your home ecosystem. A woman once said there's a bit of grass by a, a creek uh, on the edge past my daily commute that has always drawn me. So I said, go, make that your home, clean up that trash that you dislike on the edge of the road and make that the spot. Have a place in the world. I was once walking with Jane Goodall in India and she said, even in the most awful urban deserts, uh, you can still see a little flower struggling to grow up between the cracks of a sidewalk, uh, a place with some grass uh, neglected off to the, the corner of a, of a yard. That can be your home. If you learn to love that little piece of earth, that living system, then you can begin to understand eco-spirituality, begin to understand the nature of the spiritual quest. Hey, you guys, isn't that a little bit like the little prince? Uh, That's where... quite right. Yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. And I love that. And um, I'm still trying to get past walking with Jane Goodall in India. <laughs> uh, and my, my envy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> She's an amazing, amazing person because she has that sense of link. Uh, she, uh, she studied the animals and then as an ambassador for peace for the United Nations, she was traveling when I knew her 300 days a year, helping to fight for the ecosystems on which the animals of the world um, depend. And I think that when your listeners who care about spirituality and who care about the planet, when they get engaged, they get engaged by starting with a part of the world that they love and extending outward that sense that here, here in this little spot is where my spiritual quest and my love of the planet meet. Just as parents care for one or more uh, children first and thereby sometimes learn to love all others. Mm. So we begin by loving one corner of the earth and extend that to loving all corners. Great. Philip, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Any final words that you'd like to share with our listeners? And Philip, any, Phil Goldberg, any uh, <laughs> final uh, questions or comments uh, you would like to make? I did have one last question for Philip, um, and uh, we're going to have to ask you to be brief in this regard. Um, one of the troubling things about this intersection of spirit and, and uh, climate is that some of the most uh, vociferous climate change deniers um, are religious people, uh, usually conservative Christians. Uh, how do you explain that and uh, what's your response to it? That's a perfect closing question, Phil. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, and that is, as spiritual people, as people whose primary allegiance is to the sense of a spirit that is far more deeply interfused, 
of a, of a spiritual connection between us all. As that kind of person, it is our privilege and our obligation to put our hands on the shoulders of uh, fundamentalist religious people around the world to shake them, sometimes gently and sometimes not so gently, and to say, please, please, um, be willing to set aside your dry creeds and your fundamentalist principles and, and breathe with the breath of the spirit that surrounds you. See the, not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. When you drop your rigid belief system, then you can feel again the wonder of your connection with me, with plants and animals, and with all that is for spirit permeates all that is beautifully Very good. good thank you for your time and i i want to throw in one last thing philip uh i wish i could uh take one of your classes sit in on one of your classes sometime i think it would be fascinating and uh so anybody that has that opportunity uh i guess now if they're at claremont school of theology uh there's some envy there i think i think it, it would be a spectacular experience Thanks again for your time, and uh, I hope you can come on again sometime. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks, Bill, for a great discussion. Thank you for being with us, Philip, and uh, continue good work, in, uh, especially in the climate arena. Great. And we'll, we'll be in touch. Great. Take Thank care. you. Thank you.